Well, I'm struck with this passage of Scripture with several things. First of all, St. John Chrysostom, uh, Chrysostom means golden mouth, uh, because he was evidently an extremely eloquent preacher. In fact, he was so eloquent that he was appointed to be uh, the Archbishop of Constantinople, but later he fell into disfavor and died in exile. John Chrysostom believed he could date the birth of Jesus to December the 25th, roughly 5 B.C. Now, do I agree with St. John Chrysostom? I can't say I do. I can't say I don't. But he based it on one thing in the Gospel of Luke, and that is that Luke set about to speak to a Roman nobleman and to set in order historical events as he had investigated them. So Luke's gospel, its 24 chapters, are designed to show by historical events when things happened and why they happened and in a chronological order. As such, while it's not the first gospel, probably Mark's gospel's the first and John's is probably the last, it is important to look at things chronologically. And he dates these things. He dates Herod the king of Judea. And Herod died at 4 B.C. Why do we have B.C. like that? Well, because when they first tried to come up with a Christian calendar, they were off. And so we have to date our calendar based on historical evidence, not on some uh, church leader who decided, well, this sounds good. It wasn't like that. But given historical events, Jesus was born before Christ. It sounds funny to put it that way, but our system of dating is inaccurate in that regard. Herod had still to be alive. Now, John Chrysostom used the, a, an expression here in verse 5, if you look with me for a moment at Luke 1, 5, page 1587. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And uh, so Chrysostom used that to try to figure out the month of John the Baptist's conception. And knowing that the Virgin Mary, with child, visited her cousin Elizabeth, in the sixth month, he was able through all of that to come up with the date of December 25th, uh, 5 B.C. I don't know whether that's right or wrong. But this we do know. Jesus really was born. And Jesus really was born in an historical event. It's important that we understand as Christians that Christianity is not simply a group of ideas, but Christianity is founded on events that actually took place in real time and real space. There really was a virgin named Mary. And there really was a woman who was not a virgin, who was an elderly woman who had the same name in Hebrew as the wife of Aaron, the first high priest. So we need to know that Zechariah really lived, that he was a priest descended from Aaron, and he married a woman who was descended from Aaron and Aaron's wife, Elizabeth, given the Greek name. And so we need to know these people really lived. They really uh, did things in historical time and place. And so 
Anyhow, here they are. Now this leads us to something else. If Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary, that means that Mary, who was descended from King David, was also descended from Aaron. Isn't that interesting? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest. So here is the Virgin Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is descended from Aaron. And so Mary had to have both the blood of David in her and the blood of Aaron in her. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, we notice something else. There was, at that time, this sense that if you are living for the Lord, God will bless you with children. You know, there are biblical truths that can get twisted and out of line. Do you know that it is normally God's will for you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise? When you read the book of Proverbs, you see that. When you read the book of Job, you read the fine print in the contract. And that means that not everybody who's godly is going to have enough money to live on. That means not everybody that's godly is going to have these blessings all the time. In fact, notice what we read here, that he and his wife were godly people. And um, that's the first thing that we see here. Verse 6 Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Now, that doesn't mean they were without sin. When the Bible speaks about ordinary human beings being blameless, it means that their lives were conformed to God's written word by their intention. There's not a human being on earth except for the Lord Jesus who doesn't come short of the glory of God and sin. But we're talking about people who, when they did sin, quickly went to the Lord. Your mark of Christian maturity is the amount of time between knowing you've sinned and asking God to forgive you for sin. So these were people who lived their lives seeking to be conformed to God's Word. Now notice something else. Verse 7. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. So here they are. There was an age limit for the Levites. The Levites were the assistants to the priests. They were of the tribe of Levi, but they were not priests. The priests, on the other hand, had no retirement age, unlike the Levites. And so we do not know how old Zechariah was, but I have a suspicion he could have been maybe as old as I am. But we're told that, they were, they were, that she was barren and they were both well along in years. By this time in life, they'd become accustomed to the fact we we're never going to have any children. Who are we going to leave all this money to? You know, that's something people worry about sometimes. Or they worry about changing their will when their children do something bad. But here they are, no children. They become used to it. It's never going to be for us. And remember that in the Old Testament, this tended to be a mark of shame. Now notice what happens in verse 13. When the angel speaks to him, he says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And he tells him what to name him, John. So we want to see something. 
They may have given up hope, but they hadn't given up prayer. Oh, Lord. But they probably had pretty well given up because they no longer believed. Maybe they, had, they were so used to praying, Lord, please give us a child. That finally when they, they realized it's not going to happen, they just said it as a prayer. Like people oftentimes say the Our Father. Just saying words without meaning them, without thinking about them. There's no real faith here. Now notice, we see this profoundly in verse 11. He goes in for a once-in-a-lifetime experience because a priest, unless he's the high priest, would only have this privilege one time in his entire life. And here is old Zechariah going into the temple itself with other priests. But at the appointed moment, the other priests leave. And at that point, he offers the incense right in front of the curtain that separates the holy place where he is from the holy of holies, God's very presence. And there he is, and suddenly he looks to his right. And he sees something. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Would you be? Yeah, I would. <laughs> I'd be terrified, wouldn't, wouldn't you? He's terrified. And so the angel tells him, your prayer's been heard, You're gonna, your wife's going to have a child, and unlike Jesus, who drank uh, wine and strong drink, this particular person was never allowed to have strong drink or wine. And so he is kind of in the line of being a priest on the one hand and like a Nazarite on the other. And he's told he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. And he's told that he is going to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi 4. You can see that in your margin at verse 17. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And he is going to fulfill the prophecy of the coming of Elijah in the last days. Now notice verse 18. I just love verse 18. What an idiot. I mean, if you've got this shining giant figure to your right hand... Telling you all this, you're going to turn to him and say, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife's well along in years. See, unbelief had completely gripped him. He may have continued to pray for a child, but he's so full of unbelief. He can't even believe it when God sends an angel. Now notice what happens. You need a sign? I'll give you a sign. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. You want a sign? Okay. And he's got to go out and bless the people having gone in to offer the incense. And so when he goes out, all he does is... Wow. Did he have a sign? 
Do you have confirmation that what the angel told him was going to come true? Now, I want to think about this for a moment. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and let's look at verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Why is it, that's page 1875, that most people's prayers are not answered? Think about it. Why is it that most people's prayers are not answered? Here's what we're told in Hebrews 11.6. Here's Zechariah. Zechariah's praying as an unbeliever. Now, was he a real believer? Of course he was a real believer. There's a difference in being a real believer, that is, one who's turned from sin and embraced the Lord in faith for salvation, and a person who is walking in confidence that his prayers are going to be answered. Now, look what he says in verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I have to confess my own sinfulness. I have to confess to you that early in my Christian experience, because of a series of events that happened after I'd been a Christian about two years, I ceased to believe in miracles. I ceased to believe that God really wanted to hear and answer my prayer. I came to believe that the purpose of prayer was to change my heart so I could accept the inevitable. You hear what I just said? I came to believe that the purpose of prayer was not to change events and circumstances, but was just to change me so that I could put up with and have the grace to cope with the terrible things that were going to happen to me regardless of my prayers. And that's how I prayed for years. Once when our daughter was sick in Wichita, Kansas with osteomyelitis, I did have a moment of praying differently. And my wife and I pleaded with God to heal our daughter Lydia. And he did. He miraculously healed her in the hospital in Wichita. But for me, that was so rare because I didn't expect God to hear and answer prayer. I believe that God exists. That's the first condition in verse 6. But I didn't believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. One Sunday afternoon, because we always had a Sunday morning and a Sunday night service, One Sunday afternoon, I was in my office studying at the church before the evening service. And I'm checking up what I'd translated with a commentary. And the commentator talked about real prayer expects God to answer. And you know what I said to myself? I don't believe that. And when I said that to myself, it was like somebody slapped my face. What? I don't believe that. Do you mean I was a preacher? Do you mean that I first began to preach in 1965, that I had gone through college and gone through seminary and been ordained as a preacher in 1973 in a formal way as a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church? And here I was, about five years into being ordained, and I didn't really believe God Answers prayer. What? You see, I'd come to believe that the Bible is like a catalog in a museum of natural history, a catalog of extinct species. And I was very convicted. I was very burdened. I said, oh Lord, 
That's true. I don't really pray with expectation. Somewhere along the way, I began to pray with expectation. And you know what happened? When I began to pray with expectation that God really wanted to hear and really wanted to answer my prayers and not just change my heart, but change the circumstances around me, I began to see amazing answers to prayer. Amazing answers. In fact, one day when I had seen a really amazing answer to prayer, I decided, you know, Bob, one day you're going to get old. You're going to move into your late 50s. <laughs> and you begin to forget things. Yep, it happens. Why did I come into this room? Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to preach. And so... What happened is I became convicted that I should write these things down. And so I began to write in a diary a list of dramatic answers to prayer. Now let me say something to you. I like to tease and joke and make fun and play pranks. And I, not, I don't do that as much anymore as I used to. But I want to tell you, when I communicate answers to prayer, there's no exaggeration. There is no untruth. I always write explicitly, exactly, absolutely what's happened. You would not believe. Perhaps I will have it printed up for you. Some of the amazing answers to prayer that I've seen over my lifetime. You know, one day I actually had a young man who had written his entire doctoral dissertation on a computer. It was a Mac computer. I didn't know anything about Macs then. And he had it all on a floppy disk. And the computer wouldn't boot. It wouldn't read what he had. Oh no, it was on the hard drive of the computer and he went to save it on a floppy disk and the complete computer was blown. And he came to me. He had a brother-in-law that some of you may know, named Jim Hillicky. Anyhow, Jim Hillicky's brother-in-law came to me at my office and he said, Bob, he said, I'm in an awful fix. He said, my entire doctoral dissertation, he was working on a PhD at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. My entire, my entire dissertation is on this computer. He said, would you pray over it? Would you anoint it with oil? Now, I'd never read in the Bible about anointing computers. But I had read in the Bible about anointing sick people. And he said, every time I've tried to get this thing to come up, it crashes. So, he agreed with me in prayer. We laid hands on the computer and I anointed his computer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We turned it on. It came on. We put a floppy disk in it. And it backed it up. And then I said to him, Robert, you know, I don't trust floppy disks. Why don't we put another floppy disk in there and back it up? And you know what he did? He put another one in there. You know what happened? It crashed. And you know what? When he took it to a computer place to repair... They could never get it to come up again. But God did a miracle because that man was desperate and that man believed that God does do miracles today. And so his entire Ph.D. dissertation was saved on one floppy disk and only one. And he bought a new computer. 
Now, I'm simply saying this. There came a point in my life where when I prayed, I expected God to answer prayer. And I expect God to answer prayer today. I do that. And because I expect God to answer prayer, and I expect, expect Him to do what I ask Him to do, unless He has something better for me, or better for the people I'm praying about, I see amazing answers to prayer. And I have this long list of prayers answered, from healing of people to financial relief, all these kinds of things. I'm amazed at. But the point in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 is this. The one that comes to God has to believe He exists. There are a lot of people that pray that don't believe God exists. People pray. They go through the motions. I remember watching a particular funeral in the National Cathedral. And uh, everybody is praying the words, whether they believed them or not, except at that time the president and his wife. They didn't open their mouths. I thought, well, maybe they're just being honest. They don't believe, in spite of what they like to make people think. But the people that everybody thought were not Christians, they were praying. They recited the Nicene Creed. They prayed the words. You could see their mouths moving. Now, I'm talking about Donald Trump didn't pray. And Barack Obama did. What am I saying? Is that proof that Donald Trump was not a believer and that, and that uh, Barack Obama was? No. All I'm saying is you can't observe people and say, well, this one's a Christian because look, he's moving his lips. And this one's not a Christian uh, because he doesn't move his lips. You know what the bottom line is? Don't worry about politicians. No, nobody ever gets there apart from divine appointment on the one hand and satanic manipulation on the other. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. What's the purpose that I'm getting at here? People go through the motions all the time of saying they believe in God. You want to be elected to public office in most of Texas and most of Louisiana and most of Mississippi? Don't tell them you're an atheist. That's why I was wondering about this hymn on Jordan's bank, the Baptist cry. That's not exactly how it's worded in the hymn book. I'd never heard that hymn before. What I'm saying is, don't judge people by outward things. Look at yourself and ask yourself this question this morning, the second Sunday of Advent. When I pray, do I expect God to hear and answer my prayers? If you don't, you're going to be surprised again and again that He doesn't hear and answer your prayers. There are things that hinder prayer. There are things that cause people to not have their prayers answered. The number one thing is the lack of belief that God wants to do good for you. Do you believe God wants to do good for you? Do you believe, do you believe that God really does want to help you out financially? Do you believe that God really wants to help you in terms of healing? Do you believe that God normally, ordinarily wants to give you help from pain? That doesn't mean you don't ever take medicine. But it means this. When you pray, do you have no confidence that God's going to hear an answer? That's the problem with Zechariah, the father of, of John the Baptist. 
He didn't expect. He was mouthing words finally at the end of his life. Lord, please give us the child. And in the words from the Godfather, may it be a masculine child. (laughs) He's going through the motions. He believed in God, but he's not praying with faith. But dear ones, here is some wonderful truth for you and me. Even though he's full of unbelief, in the sense that he no longer expects God to hear and answer his prayer. What does God do? He hears and answers those prayers from years ago. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan God's work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower unfolding every hour. I want to challenge you today. What do I see in America today? I see a church that is lost. It's lost its way because it's a church without prayer. What is the number one problem in churches that I see as I travel because I have this job for Presbytery to visit churches? Nobody prays anymore. Oh, people pray at home. And people come together for prayer meeting. You know what prayer meeting is in most churches? It's a time of people sitting around, shooting the bull, and everybody sharing his ignorance. Do you know what a prayer meeting is? It's when people talk to God. It's when they say, brothers and sisters, I've got this problem. I've got cancer. Or my grandson's on his way to hell. Or my wife has terrible heart disease. I need help. Somebody help me. Help me. Help me. That's what prayer meeting is. It's where people get together in agreement, in crying out to God and saying, Lord, sister so-and-so has a huge need. And Lord, we're standing together with her in her suffering. But we're just too private, aren't we? We're just too private. Just too private. I've got relatives that are just too private. I've got a niece who's faced great difficulty. I won't name her name, even though she'll never listen to this. Um, But she's got a terrible problem. Her mother called me about it and told me her daughter was going to call me. Never did. Very private. Oh, I, I, I can't share that. Well, then don't share it. You bear it by yourself. You just go on suffering. The biggest problem in the church of America today is unbelief and a lack of united prayer in local churches. What's wrong with Trinity Evangelical Presbyterian Church? Where is the prayer meeting? Where is it? I'm talking again about a Bible study. I'm talking about prayer meeting, gathering together to petition heaven. What's wrong with America? America's in terrible, terrible trouble. What's wrong with America is a lack of prayer. A lack of corporate prayer. A lack of coming together and pleading with God the promises of God. Pleading the promises of God. Lord, help! Lord, change! Can God heal cancer? Yes, I've seen Him do it. On multiple occasions. Can God heal heart disease? Yes, I've seen Him do it. Are we just going to be like the liberal church down the street? 
or the Roman church down the street where people just go through the motions? Are we going to become a church finally in 2022 that unites in petitioning heaven for change? When a prayer covering is missing from a church, its pastors and elders and deacons are sitting ducks for satanic demonic attack that destroys them and in so doing destroys the church. So I want to challenge you as you come to communion. Believe the promises of God. The Lord Jesus promises to meet with us in this meal. I don't know how. The Bible doesn't define exactly how, but he promises to meet with us. Will you believe the promises of God? For as many as may be the promises of God in Jesus Christ, they are yea and in them amen. Will you commit with me as we begin a new year that you will join me some way or another in uniting in seasons of prayer in this church? I don't know how. I don't know how, but I'll say this. As I close, the hardest work in the world is prayer. I'm not talking about saying words. People can say words all day long. I'm talking about really seeking the face of God, particularly in front of other people. That's what we need. That's what Trinity needs. That's what every church in Texarkana needs. Because what? Where God's people gather together in unity to plead the promises of God, God commands His blessing. May we pray. Lord, we pray that You would take these words, feeble as they are, that You would give us, as we reflect on Zechariah, a man who said words, a man who was even privileged to go in and offer incense the one and only time in his life, And yet, when you send your answer through the archangel Gabriel, he's so full of unbelief that he says, prove it to me. Lord, may we not be like Zechariah. May we be like the Virgin Mary who believed and asked how you would do it, but believed you would do it. And Lord, bless as we gather at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.